are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering the following four topics. We proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Second, the Baptism of Jesus. Third, the miracles of Jesus and the messianic secret, and fourth, what Jesus says to the paralytic. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the second gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scripture's Bible study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scripture's program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about We Proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The word evangelist is from a Greek word, actually from a combined Greek word meaning good news. So, the evangelists are proclaimers of the good news. Each of the evangelists writes a prologue to his gospel, which acts like a kind of overture. It sets the tone. It sets the theme. It brings a key theme into view in preparation for the remainder of the gospel that will be written. Now, two of the evangelists were original apostles of Jesus Christ. We are speaking here of John and of Matthew. But Mark and Luke were apostles that came later. It's interesting that of the evangelists, two are among the original twelve, and Luke was a disciple of and companion of Paul, of St. Paul, and Mark, or John Mark, cousin of Barnabas, John Mark, who also traveled with St. Paul for a while and eventually spent a great deal of time with St. Peter. So Mark is actually considered a disciple of Peter. But in looking at the evangelists, we have two who are among the original apostles and two who are disciples of the apostles, so that in the four evangelists, God is already speaking to us about the transmission of divine revelation how it is handed on through the apostles and they proclaim the gospel to their disciples who then also proclaim the gospel. Now if we look at the prologues, which we will do for just a few minutes today, of each of the four gospels, we see something very interesting, something that the church fathers noticed. And in the very earliest days of tradition, the four evangelists were depicted through symbols of a man, an eagle, a bull, and a lion. Now, these symbols point to 
a theme found in the prologue which is important to the Gospel as a whole. The Gospel of St. Matthew, for example, begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1, St. Matthew writes, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. It is the paternal genealogy of Jesus. He is proclaiming Christ, God made man, as the Messiah, the Christ, for whom Israel had waited all those centuries. Therefore, Matthew is depicted with the face of a man, because Jesus, what he emphasizes about Jesus from the beginning, is that this man, whom we knew, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, the one for whom we had waited all these centuries. The Gospel of St. Luke begins with Zechariah going to the temple to pray and offer sacrifice. A bull or a winged ox is used to depict Luke. And this refers back to the sacrifice of Israel in the temple life, but it also brings into play the sacrificial aspects of the life of Jesus, that Jesus is the sacrifice to atone for the sins of mankind. Now, St. John is depicted with the symbol of an eagle because his gospel is the, the sublime gospel, as it were. It's deeply theological. It's lofty. It's very elevated. Just as an eagle hovers high near the heavens, the eagle also has an elevated view of the world. And so St. John's Gospel is mystical in nature. In fact, we all recall the opening of that Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, where in very eloquent and poetic language, he begins by declaring that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So St. John is the eagle. St. Mark is the lion, the lion or the winged lion. How does he begin the prologue of his gospel? With a lion roaring in the desert, John the Baptist. It is John the Baptist who is that lion roaring in the desert as the prophet roars in the desert. What's interesting is that it is Mark in writing his gospel. Mark is now the roaring lion. And Mark is depicted as a lion. He is the lion roaring with the same voice, the same words, that the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, roared as the lion in the desert. It is the lion in the desert. It's the same lion roaring, the same spirit, the same voice that roared in all of the prophets. And everything that the prophets spoke was about Christ. So these lions all point to the one lion who is the lion of Judah. The Old Testament prophets speak of the lion of Judah pointing to Christ. And everyone who speaks about that lion is speaking of that lion, preparing for that lion, speaking with the spirit of the lion and the words of the lion. So that's why there is something very self-effacing in the prophets and all who who prophesy, who speak the word of God, something self-effacing because we are merely the voice that proclaims the word. We are not the word. Prophets don't speak of themselves. 
They are a voice that calls out in the desert. So, St. Mark, in beginning his Gospel, starts this way. Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a definitive, power-packed statement. It's not even a complete sentence. The sentence doesn't have a verb. It says, if a messenger goes forth from a king to proclaim good news to the whole kingdom, and in going out over the countryside or into the cities, he begins by saying merely the gospel, or the good news of the king, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. St. Mark uses the word gospel in a kind of definitive way. The other evangelists will speak of good news, a word rooted in the Greek evangelion, but when St. Mark uses the word gospel, he is using it in a way, in a unique and singular way, as if to say the gospel, the one and only gospel that ever was or ever will be. For St. Mark, it's not merely, I have good news to tell you, I bring you good news. It is as if he is saying, I am bringing you the good news, the definitive good news. The very next verse, he says, it is written in the prophet Isaiah. He goes right back and takes the words of the prophet Isaiah, and they are really on the lips of John the Baptist, who proclaims Christ. Mark writes, Look, I am going to send my messenger in front of you to prepare your way before you. Malachi, a voice of one that cries in the desert, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight his paths. He is taking the words of the prophet, and he is repeating what John the Baptist has said, and now it is Mark who is taking these words to himself. Therefore, there is one word, there is one proclamation. We are all that voice in the wilderness proclaiming Christ. John the Baptist, being a prophet, a prophet is, after all, one who speaks before others, one who speaks on behalf of another. That's what a prophet does. He is the greatest prophet of all, as Jesus himself says, because John the Baptist proclaims in the very presence of the fulfillment of the word, the word. He is the only prophet to actually see the day when that word will be fulfilled. He is able to see, to be in the presence of the Messiah himself. Therefore, as the Church tells us, in John the Baptist, in him the Holy Spirit concludes his speaking through the prophets. He completes then the whole cycle of prophets that have begun with Elijah. That's why Jesus says that John the Baptist, he is Elijah who has come. They knew Elijah was going to return, and when they go to John the Baptist to inquire of him, they want to know, is he Elijah? Is he the prophet Moses? Is he the Messiah? They keep asking him these questions. And all he says of himself, of course, in a self-effacing way is, I am a voice, because he does not speak of himself, but he bears witness to another greater than he. So John the Baptist inaugurates the gospel, as the church says, from the womb of his mother. When Mary is carrying Christ within her womb, she has conceived him by the power of the Holy Spirit, goes to her cousin Elizabeth, she is proclaiming Christ. And John the Baptist, in response to this proclamation, 
leaps in the womb of his mother. And he responds to, he receives the proclamation of that gospel that Mary, icon and prototype of the church, proclaims. This is what the church does to the end of time. Mary is a prototype of this. The church, carrying Christ within her, the life of Christ in her womb, goes forth in the world and proclaims that life. And the life within those who hear the word proclaimed, that life within us leaps up in response to and in the presence of Christ, the Word. With John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit, thus begins the restoration of man to divine likeness. The old covenant is closed and is closing. The new covenant is being established in Christ. Something great and new is happening. And John the Baptist is a hinge, so to speak, the hinge between the Old and the New Testament, because everything from this point forward, particularly from the point of the baptism of Christ, everything is going to, to be different. Jesus himself says that it was toward John, talking of John the Baptist, it was toward John that all the prophecies of all the prophets were leading. Everything is leading up to John the Baptist, who will finally, in the presence of the world, proclaim the presence of the Lamb of God. Now, faith is necessary to respond to the proclamation of the Word of God. John the Baptist preaches a baptism of repentance. He baptizes with water because he is preparing the way of the Lord. And this baptism of repentance calls out of us faith because it is the Holy Spirit who convinces us of sin. If we are not convinced of sin, the sin that is in us, and our need for salvation, then we do not desire salvation. Once we are convinced that we have need of a Savior, we open ourselves up to hearing the Word and to letting it penetrate our hearts and transform us. As St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? There is this mystery in God's plan regarding the transmission of divine revelation that he will always send a forerunner ahead of him to prepare the way of the Lord. Because we too share in the office of prophecy by virtue of our baptism, we are called to go forth in the world like Elijah's and John the Baptist and the evangelists, proclaiming the way of the Lord. And people will respond to this proclamation in faith. In this proclamation, there is a gathering together of the people of God so that we can be formed as his people and carry on the transmission of that faith. It is important for us to remember that Faith is not an isolated act. Faith is something which is received. Each believer is a link in a whole chain of believers. When parents and godparents bring a child to the baptismal font, the priest asks, what do you ask of God's church? The answer is faith. They ask faith. The parents cannot even bring that child to the baptismal font unless they have the faith to do so. 
And by bringing the child to the baptismal font, they are preparing the way of the Lord for that child. That child is being inserted into the mystical body of Christ, into the life of faith, into a community of faith. Just as no one lives alone, no one believes alone. What we believe has been handed on to us by people who have gone before us. This is an important part of God's plan in divine revelation. The forerunners of Christ, because Christ will come again. And in the New Age, we continue to be forerunners, proclaiming Christ who is coming. Just as John the Baptist was proclaiming Christ. It is through the life of faith that we are brought to understand the Word. You remember when Philip, for example, in chapter 8 of Acts of the Apostles, comes upon the Ethiopian eunuch who is sitting there reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asks him if he can understand what he is reading. And the eunuch answers, how can I understand unless there is someone who can guide me? And of course, Philip then preaches Christ to him. And at the end of that, he says, is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? And he is baptized. In chapter 19 of Acts of the Apostles, we find that event where Paul goes to Ephesus and he encounters a group of disciples who were baptized in the baptism of John. And he asks them if they know the Holy Spirit. He says, have they received the Holy Spirit? They say to him, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. What scripture tells us is that St. Paul goes on to proclaim Christ to them, after which he baptizes them. And scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit descended upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They then began in turn to prophesy the word of God because of what they received in baptism, that gift. Faith is a gift. It is the nature of all who prophesy, all who proclaim Christ, Christ to come again, that we are self-effacing in this, that we do not proclaim ourselves, but it is the Spirit of God speaking in us that proclaims God. Christ himself, in his public ministry, said that the Father, he did not testify to himself, but that the Father bore witness to the Son through the Holy Spirit. Even when people would come to Christ and ask him who he was, there is something self-effacing in Christ's own response. He answers with words such as these, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And the evidence that he is all these things comes in the power of the Holy Spirit through his miracles, which we will talk about in a few minutes. When the Jews go to John the baptizer, because there is power in his teaching, he had many followers, many were going to him and being baptized, confessing their sins and so on. They go to him and say, who are you? They ask him this forthright, who are you? His answer is, he doesn't say, I am John, the son of Zechariah. His answer is this. He says, I am not the Christ. That's his answer. I am not the Christ. They say, well, are you Elijah then? Are you the prophet then? What do you have to say about yourself? His answer is, I am a voice. I am a voice that cries out in the desert. He has come to prepare the way of the Lord. There is this self-effacing quality there should be 
in all of us who proclaim Christ, that we empty ourselves, that our identity comes through Christ and Christ alone. The moment in which John the Baptist most fully reveals his own identity is precisely when he proclaims Jesus Christ. When Christ comes into his presence and he is baptizing in the River Jordan, he stops and looks at Christ and St. John proclaims, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In those words, St. John is declaring definitively who he himself is. His identity, his mission, his origin, his ultimate end, his purpose in life, everything about him is declared in declaring Christ as the forgiveness of sins. That is the kind of self-effacement that we find in all prophets and all who are forerunners of Christ until the end of time, proclaiming Christ to come. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Mark from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering the baptism of Jesus. And now, back to Dr. George. Why is Jesus baptized by St. John, who baptizes with water for the repentance of our sins? Jesus is perfect. He is without sin. To understand this, we have to go back to the mystery of the Incarnation, in which God becomes man. In the one person of Jesus Christ, who has two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, in his person, he takes all humanity to himself, and in taking our humanity to himself, he takes all sin to himself, upon himself. This is one of the keys to understanding the mystery of our redemption. Christ is the fulfillment of all the law. God reveals the law to his people and tells them what they must do in preparation for the fulfillment of the law. Certain things which are gestures, which are signs of the covenant, of the covenantal life. Jesus comes and is subject, he subjects himself to the law. Therefore, there is a way in which Jesus, though he is God, must also fulfill all the prescriptions of the law because he is perfectly just. He can't ignore the law. It's his law. It must be fulfilled. Only God, only God can fulfill the law perfectly. So he fulfills the law. He does everything that God has prescribed for man and in doing so fulfills it for us in us, because remember, he has taken our humanity to himself. So we find our fulfillment in the law in Christ. Not only can he alone fulfill all law and be pleasing in the presence of the Father, but to the degree that we fulfill God's will, it can therefore be done only in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but he merits for us the strength to fulfill the law, in other words, the strength to strive in this journey towards holiness. We receive our strength in Christ, who alone was capable of doing this. 
when he goes to John the Baptist and tells him that he must baptize him, St. John recoils from this. He recognizes and admits, he says, it is I who should be asking that you baptize me. And the Lord tells St. John to do this just for now, for a time. We must allow this for a time because it's a fulfillment of the law. In John's baptizing Jesus then, because he goes into the water, into the River Jordan, the River Jordan is symbolic of all water. It is the blessed water. It's the blessed river that goes through the center of the promised land. And it represents or is symbolic of all water of life about which God has been speaking from the beginning. We will come back to this in just a minute. And in doing this, Jesus allows himself, when he goes into the Jordan to be baptized by St. John, he allows himself to be numbered among sinners to be recognized as one who has taken sin upon himself. He undergoes the baptism of John. He numbers himself among sinners. He is revealing that in his humanity he has taken upon himself all of our sin, all that needs to be redeemed. He is therefore accepting, his baptism is an acceptance and an inauguration of his mission as God's suffering servant. In a sense, the baptism of Jesus sets in motion. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of the Paschal mystery, which will end with the passion and death of Christ. He enters into this public aspect of his mystery, the final days in which everything will be fully accomplished. The Father's voice responds then, to the Son's acceptance of his will and his mission, and therefore the Father proclaims his delight in the Son. He is the beloved Son in whom the Father finds his full and perfect delight. Jesus goes into the water of the River Jordan then. Now we recall from the book of Genesis at the beginning, there was this great and dark void, but God tells us that there was a divine wind sweeping over the waters at creation. The Holy Spirit is present and pouring out upon creation the peace and order and harmony of God. It is just after this that God says, let there be light. So the created order is established in truth, in order, in harmony, in peace. But man turns away from God and all of this then is, is damaged. Creation becomes disordered. And water, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, just as the wind, the breath of God, symbolizes the Holy Spirit, the dove is another symbol of the Holy Spirit, all of these symbols and signs through which God speaks to us in salvation history come to a kind of fulfillment at the baptism of Christ. We are made for God. We are made to live in water, in full communion with God. But that communion is ruptured, and we no longer have life in God. We no longer have life in the Holy Spirit. We are not like fish who can live in the water. It's no accident that Christ is sometimes depicted traditionally associated with the image of fish. Christians are associated with that image of fish. Now, after the fall, we can't live in the waters. The waters become becomes, so to speak, a place of death for us because we can't live any longer. We do not have life in the Holy Spirit. 
in the story of Noah, what happens is that God, in order to cleanse and purify, because the Holy Spirit, the power of God, sanctifies, cleanses, purifies, renews, refreshes, gives life to the world through water, but it's a water that will bring first death to us before that water can bring life. So God tells Noah, the just man, to build an ark, which is a prefigurement of the Ark of the Covenant that God establishes in his church. And inside this ark, we find safety from the waters of death. We will not die. We will not drown in the waters of death. He says, do this for a time. Seek your refuge within this ark that God tells Noah how to build. Noah is a figure of Christ. At the end of the floodwaters, because everything is destroyed so that the earth might be renewed and made inhabitable once again, Noah sends out a dove, and the dove comes back bearing in its beak an olive branch, which is the sign of peace. God is saying that his spirit will again hover over the waters of the earth, but with an olive branch in its mouth, bringing peace to the whole earth and being a sign that he has prepared a land for us, a promised land that will be able to be inhabited by God's people. When Christ goes into the waters of the River Jordan, he transforms, he brings to completion what God is doing, that sign of water, the meaning of water that we find throughout salvation history. Everything is changed from that point forward. Christ himself, by immersing himself in the waters, transforms the waters of death. By going down into the water of death, he changes the waters, which are a curse of death, now into a blessing, and thereby sanctifies, as the church says, all the waters of the world. It is with good reason that it is through the sign of water that we are baptized. So Christ transforms all that he touches, and the waters now become cleansing, healing, sanctifying, life-giving in a way that far exceeds just a natural understanding of what water can do. God, through the elements of the earth, speaks to us in natural ways, and through these natural understandings, we can access the invisible realities, because every truth in the natural realm has an equivalent truth in the supernatural realm, which we then access through faith. Psalm 114 speaks of this. In speaking of what happens with the waters, the psalmist says, and remember that God, if his people must pass through the waters of death, what God does is he parts the waters for us. It's as if the waters stand back so that we can pass through on dry land and go to the other side without being scathed or touched by this. In a sense, this happens in the Jordan. When Jesus goes into the Jordan, an image which is foretold in the book of Joshua, because the water's there again. We have the parting of the Red Sea, then we have the parting later of the waters when Joshua brings God's people into the Holy Land. And it says that the Jordan stood back because in the presence of God among his people, the waters stand away to allow God to to move through or upon the earth and do what he wants to do. The psalmist says, filled with the Holy Spirit, when Israel came forth from Egypt, 
Now, the psalmist, of course, is speaking of Christ's own baptism because Israel is brought out, delivered from Egypt, as we are through our baptism. But Christ goes first. When Israel came forth from Egypt, the sea fled at the sight. The Jordan turned back on its course. It turned back on its natural course. It paused before the power of God. Everything has changed from that point forward. The mountains leapt like rams and the hills like yearling sheep. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord in the presence of the God of Jacob. When Christ brings to completion the mystery of the redemption, there is a trembling in the whole earth. Everything reverberates. The action of God reverberates down through time and history and all of the natural created order, changing everything. We recall at the crucifixion of Christ, at the death of Christ, the earth shook. The heavens and the earth shook. And everything changes. Christ's baptism, therefore, brings to an end the old order, and it opens for us again the doorway to salvation. Heaven had been closed with the sin of Adam and Eve and had remained closed until, until Christ came. And St. Mark, in speaking of this, at the baptism of Jesus says, at once coming up out of the water, he saw, St. John the Baptist, saw the heavens torn apart. It's as if they're rent open. And the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon Christ. It's as if the Old Covenant, if we could take a parchment of paper in which an Old Covenant is written, it's as if that is torn in two, it is brought to a finish. It's like we're going to tear this apart and we are going to reestablish this covenant, which God does. He reestablishes the covenant by opening up the heavens. The gate of heaven is opened up. That's why when we, when we pray the litany to the sacred heart of Jesus, it speaks of, it calls Christ the sacred temple, the house of God, gate of heaven, burning furnace of charity. He opens the heavens at the baptism of Christ. The gates of heaven are rent open. There's something in St. Mark's Gospel. His Gospel is, it's brief. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. There is something simple about it and to the point because it's as if he is rushing to proclaim the essential events of the life of Christ. But he also throws at us these kind of amazing words and phrases, small words. His narratives are not long, drawn-out, extended narratives. But he has these words that will take us by surprise sometimes. And here is one example of them where he says that the heavens were torn apart. There's like a violence. He talks about how after a miracle, the crowds see a miracle of Christ. He says they were astonished. They were amazed. He says they were overcome with awe. Because in the presence of Christ, the God-man, there is a holy violence, so to speak, about what is taking place. The baptism of Jesus then completes, brings to its completion the Old Covenant and tears open the gates of heaven and establishes a new covenant, making heaven itself and life in God our new promised land. And these are the waters, of course, that we will pass over unscathed in Christ that we already have passed over in baptism because Christ has gone before us, we pass through these waters of death, and we come out on the other side into the promised land. This will be brought to its fulfillment and completion at the end of our life, 
in the resurrection of the body, and we will enter heaven, body and soul, and live in union with God. Jesus' baptism is not necessary for him, but it indeed is necessary for us, for our salvation. God, whatever God reveals, is essential to our salvation. The fact that Jesus, in his person, undergoes, he submits himself to baptism, is a gift and preparation for the way of our salvation. He says, I am the way, and he shows us that way. So his baptism, we could say, although not necessary for Jesus at all, although it is necessary in the sense that he fulfills the law, it in fact is very necessary for us. Because whatever Jesus has not accomplished first, whatever he has not done first, in whatever way he has not gone before us first, there is no way for us. We do not possess that unless he himself has accomplished it. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Mark from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering the miracles of Jesus and the Messianic secret, and then she will move into what Jesus says to the paralytic. And now, back to Dr. George. We turn now to the miracles of Jesus, and we notice in the Gospel of St. Mark that if we read the extended Gospel in its full narrative, especially in these opening chapters, we encounter miracle after spectacular miracle of Jesus Christ. And we're amazed, St. Mark says, that the crowds were astonished by these miracles because St. Mark is emphasizing that the power of God is among us. The kingdom of God has come among us. This is why St. Mark records how the demons respond. The demons tremble in the presence of Christ. And in fact, the Spirit of Christ torments them in the sense that they are tormented being in the Spirit of Christ. It is because they are established in evil and they are in the presence of the Holy One, of their very Creator. The demons recognize the Messiah. They know their God. They know who He is. And they know that when they see Christ, when they see God come in the flesh, that the world has entered into the final days, the last days of the age. They know that their kingdom, that in Christ their kingdom is conquered. They know that they will no longer have victory or power over man because God has taken our humanity to himself, redeemed us, and brought us salvation. So the coming of God's kingdom in Christ means the defeat of Satan's. They know that it's finished for them. They know that, in a sense, it's over. That they no longer have unlimited, well, their power over man is not unlimited because God won't allow it to be, but their power over man to enslave us, to seduce us, becomes very limited whenever we live in the person of Christ. He is the one that protects us and gives us the strength to stand against the temptations of the evil one. Jesus says, now sentence is being passed on this world. Now 
the prince of this world is being driven out, he announces. We hear those words in the Gospel of St. John. So his miracles, the demons see, he casts them out of the people whom they possess. The gig is up. Their kingdom has come to its finality. And in the presence of Christ, they tremble with fear. As the Lord himself reveals, all creatures will bend their knee before the name of Jesus. All in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bend their knee at the name of Jesus. So the demons respond then in fear and trembling. The miracles of Jesus are signs pointing to the greatness of the mystery that he is revealing to man, the mystery of the redemption. But we have to remember, this is key to understanding the miracles, they are signs. They do not contain the finality, but they point to the fulfillment or completion of that. That is something which is otherworldly, which is the victory over and transformation of both body and soul. The miracles of Jesus, then, are performed through the power he has as God, but through his humanity, as St. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So there are powers that come forth from the body of Christ, and this is something that is carried over into the sacramental life of the Church. The mysteries, as Pope St. Leo the Great speaks of, that the powers revealed in Christ through his miracles and through the mysteries of his life are carried over into the mystical life of the church and the sacramental life of the church. When John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to inquire of him, are you the one to come or are we to expect another? Jesus says to the disciples of John the Baptist, go back and tell them what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the evil spirits are expelled or driven out of people, those suffering from virulent skin diseases are cleansed, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, tell them what you have seen and heard. God uses his miracles as signs to draw us more deeply into the life of faith. It calls out of us faith. Miracles, the miracles of Christ, speak to us in a natural kind of way. They are concrete, visible signs that are aids or helps for us to understand the deeper, the greater invisible mystery. But we have to be careful that we don't stop at the sign and want the consolation or the power of the sign and not go beyond it. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, had to die again in an earthly form of death. Because the resurrection, that great miracle, pointed to the resurrection, the final and total resurrection, to everlasting life. That's what it points to, not to simply living forever in an earthly life. Because at the end, the heavens and the earth, as we know it, will pass away. So these miracles become motives of credibility for us. It is God speaking to us in a way which is adapted to the intelligence of all. We understand, we are amazed by, concrete, visible miracles. This is why Jesus says, especially to the Jews, who do not believe that he is the Messiah, 
He says, if you cannot believe me, at least believe in the works that I do. If he can raise the dead to life, then there's something in this person. The kingdom of God is revealed in the person of Christ. And that's why he says to the disciples of John the Baptist, tell them what you have seen and heard yourselves. That is testimony. Jesus, many times in the Gospels, he calls faith out of people. It is in faith that we must respond. We must believe in the one that God has sent. And it is faith that draws us more deeply into this mystery. It is faith that is pleasing to Jesus when he encounters those who come to him. It is not simply a matter of being fed or having our earthly problems fixed. It is a greater healing, a greater transformation that God desires to bring us. And the miracles merely point to, they are signs pointing to the invisible reality. Not unlike a sign along a road that gives us information about, that guides us, that reassures us in getting to our destiny, but the sign is not the destination. It's not the reality. So the miracles are signs, salvific as they are, because they are indeed powers that come forth from the body of Christ, the Messiah. This is part of the key in understanding what biblical commentators sometimes refer to as the messianic secret. Messianic, a word coming from the word Messiah, especially in the Gospel of Mark. St. Mark records these moments where Jesus will perform a miracle for someone, and then he tells that person not to tell anyone. It's like, keep this a secret, keep this a secret. And many times the people go off and they ignore what Christ has said, and they go and proclaim him and tell others. And for this reason does St. Mark say that Jesus, therefore, could no longer go openly into any town. Why can't Jesus go openly into the towns and villages and into the countryside? Because people spoke of the miracles that he can feed us until we are full. He will heal our maladies. The lame can walk, the deaf can hear, the blind can see. And the people, because we often look at miracles, we want to cling to the immediate quick fix of that miracle without wanting to go beyond it and live the life of faith, especially when God decides to withhold a miracle in order to draw us to a greater, more perfect faith, hope, and charity. It's part of the mystery of God. And for this reason, when Jesus would feed the crowds, for example, they would follow him, and Jesus said, you have come to me because you want more bread, because I fed you. And he is trying to tell them there is something, there is something greater here in my person. This is why he speaks later in the Gospels when they talk of the greatness of God's acts in the prophet Jonah, in Solomon, in the wise Solomon who built the great temple. Yes, these are great things. God's saving hand is in the lives of these people at work, but they are signs. They are figures of Christ, and the events of their lives are signs pointing to Christ. Everything is fulfilled in the person of Christ. Jesus says, you have a greater than Jonah here. The sign of Jonah is the sign of the resurrection. You have a greater than Solomon here. Solomon points to wisdom and the building of, of God's temple. But it was an earthly resurrection of Jonah and of Lazarus. It was an earthly form of temple 
pointing to the things of God, oriented towards God, but fulfilled only in the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is the meaning and the fulfillment of all the signs and miracles. They point to him. Therefore, we can't stop with the sign. We have to get beyond that. And at some point in our own lives, God brings us to this realization when, if at some point, it's certainly legitimate to pray for a miracle or to ask for a miracle, but our happiness must not depend upon receiving that miracle. The life of our faith, our hope, must not depend upon whether we receive that miracle we want. Yes, we want to be whole and happy and healthy, but the health of life and the restoration that God has promised us is far greater than merely having a withered hand cured or giving our physical sight back. He will give us all that in the end anyway. The health and restoration God has in store for us, if we embrace that in faith, hope, and charity, He will give us everything else along with it, everything else besides. And more than that, because at the end, not only will we have a perfect body, we will have a glorified body in Christ at the end of time. So, sometimes God will allow us to suffer. Christ heals absolutely everything. Scripture says everyone who went to him was healed. But there are other moments in Scripture where God reveals that many people went to him and Christ healed many of them. We all receive healing from God. All who go to Christ receive healing. It's just that we may not receive the form of healing we ask for, but only because God has a greater and more perfect, a more complete form of healing that he is desiring to give us. For this reason, the blind person, for example, who cannot see, can actually become a more enlightened person than the person who has eyes that can see. The deaf person can become more perceptive, can hear and penetrate the Word of God in a way far more than somebody who actually has physical hearing. The person who may sit behind bars in a prison can live a life of complete dignity and freedom in Christ. They may be locked behind the door of a prison, but in Christ they will be set free and their soul will be healed and transformed and they will begin to live the dignity that God has ordained for them from the very beginning of time. This is what Christ is pointing to. So it's no longer a matter of some sign which is merely physical. There are all sorts of people not locked up behind prison doors who are able to move freely physically about the world. But those people are completely enslaved to sin. They are dead in their soul. They have no freedom whatsoever. It is this reality that Christ is pointing to. This is why he tries to hold people back. This is the, the key to the messianic secret. It's like, wait, there is something greater here I'm trying to give you. But instead, in the imperfection of our humanity, our way of seeing things and understanding things, we tend to cling to the more immediate, concrete, tangible, and earthly realities of wanting to, to be comfortable wanting to be fed, wanting to be healed of a deformity or of a malady, wherein in fact God invites us in His Son to endure these things, 
to be brought to the perfection of our own faith and hope and charity, and also to become configured to Christ so that we can become co-collaborators with him, and we can enter into the, the redemptive suffering of Christ so that we take on the consequences of sin, because this is what they are, consequences of sin. Illness is not a sin, unless a person's abuse of their body has, has helped to bring that about. But many things happen in the world which are simply the consequence of the fall, and we must endure these. If we endure them through, with, and in Christ, these forms of suffering become redemptive. They are transformative not only of our soul, but transformative of the world because we now collaborate with Christ in the redemption of the world because we are united to him. Finally, we want to spend just a few minutes here on the cure of the paralytic, the man whom some people bring in and lower on a mat in a house where Jesus is teaching, and the crowds had gathered so much around him that they couldn't even bring him in the door. So they take part of the roof off and lower him down. St. Mark says, seeing their faith, he sees their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now, this may take us by surprise because we perhaps expect him to say, noticing their faith, My child, pick up your mat and walk. But he says, Your sins are forgiven. We sort of expect, and the people around him must have wanted Jesus to say, You are healed. Pick up your mat and walk. Maybe they were even disappointed. The Jews were angry by what he said because they said nobody can forgive sins except God alone. This is true. But Christ is revealing himself as God. That's what the miracles give evidence of. The power of God among his own people. The kingdom of God has come among us. God has visited his people. And they say, the scribes who were sitting there, thought to themselves, they don't say this out loud, but Jesus can penetrate hearts and minds, another revelation of his divinity. How can this man talk like that? They are thinking, he is being blasphemous. Who but God can forgive sins? At once Jesus, inwardly aware that this is what they were thinking, said to them, why do you have these thoughts in your hearts? Which of these is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, pick up your stretcher and walk? Well, now, for God, all miracles are equal. It's not that one is easy and one is difficult. But he says, which is easier to say? There is something sort of ironic about this. For man, it would, in a sense, be easier for us to say, your sins are forgiven. Because we don't have to have anything else to back that up. We, of course, can't. We have no power to say that. No authority. But we don't have to sort of prove anything by that. But to say to someone, pick up your mat and walk, that has to be backed up by evidence. The person who's been a cripple for many years, perhaps all his life, has to be able to get up and start walking. So we can't do either one of these. The miracle, which is the lesser of the two realities in terms of salvation, the forgiveness of sins is our salvation. That is the great reality God is revealing in his Son. And so when he says your sins are forgiven, he is already, he is going right to the fulfillment of this mystery. He is revealing it all right then and there. He says, but to prove to you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, now he will give the evidence for this authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I order you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go off home. 
which the man then does. God can do all things, but the healing is just something natural, temporary. The healing of the paralytic is a sign pointing to the power and authority of Christ to forgive sins, pointing to the mercy and love of God for us in our suffering. Jesus associates himself with the suffering. He takes our sins, he bears our sins in his own body. There is this love that goes out from the person of Christ, a love that wills our total restoration, our complete healing, our complete fullness of life. Jesus asks faith of us. This is something that is so important. He did not come to earth to abolish all evils here below, as the church tells us, but in fact to set us free from the greatest evil, which is sin, sin leading to death. The miracles of Christ point to, they announce, a more radical healing, the victory of Jesus over sin and death. And all of this will be fulfilled in the passion and death of Christ. So what he reveals to us in the miracles, he is revealing, he is really announcing that he is the Messiah. He is our salvation. He is our redemption. And he has the proof, the authority, the power to back this up. He gives us these miracles, which are signs that can draw us to the life of faith. He continues to give them to us also in the life of the church because we hear of these things and many people are drawn. At the very least, people listen with a new set of ears. They open their hearts up so that they can see, they can begin to see the mystery of God and embrace it in their own lives. So that we go then from these motives of credibility adapted to human intelligence and from there we begin to live the supernatural life of faith, hope, and love, brought to perfection in Christ and accomplished definitively and fully in the passion and death and finally in his resurrection. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George will be covering the following six topics. It is Jesus who speaks the word we hear. Second, with love, God calls all sinners. Third, in the presence of the Lord, we do not fast. Fourth, our response to the law of Christ reveals our hearts. Fifth, Christ founds his church on the apostles. And sixth, our relationship with God takes precedence over all. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.